You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, everybody. A couple weeks ago, I had a... uh, a phone call with a friend of mine, he's a, a pastor in rural Virginia, and his name is Chuck. And Chuck has this very, very thick Cajun accent, and so he's very fun to talk to. And uh, I, I called Chuck up just to check in on him and see how he's doing. And I, I, as anybody does, the first thing I said on the phone, Chuck, how you doing? And his answer blew me away. He said, you know, I'm just about as filled with as much joy as the human body can handle. That is an answer. <laughs> What an amazing answer that that was. But he took me back. I was like, oh, Chuck, man, I didn't expect you to say that. Like, that's deep, man. I'm filled with just as much joy as the human body can handle. Come on now. That's how I'm feeling this morning. I don't know about you, but I woke up and and I was just kind of like, oh, all right, we're here. And over the last hour and a half or so, God has just been pouring this, this, yeah, the gift of joy into me. And I'm fired up, guys. I'm fired up for what God has in store for us today, and I'm fired up that we have the opportunity to come and to celebrate the beauty that is in this day. Now, for some of us, we think about this weekend, and we say this is Memorial Day weekend, and that's great, three-day weekend, hooray. But today is also a huge, special, momentous day in the life of the church. Today's Pentecost Sunday. We got a little celebration for Pentecost Sunday. Come on now, it's Pentecost Sunday, y'all. Here we go. For some of us, that might mean a whole lot. For some of us, we might not know really what that means, and it's this. On Pentecost Sunday, we acknowledge the day the Holy Spirit descended from heaven, the birthday of the church, a beautiful day that God said, hey, I want to take what I've done a little bit further. See, in Jesus coming, he said, I want to be with you. With the Spirit coming, he said, I'm going to be within you. Amen? Amen. Think about that. God doesn't only desire to be with you. He wants to be in you, in us. We have to be sure about this. My friends, the invitation to the Christian life is not just about obeying God's external rules and guidelines and being completely focused on behavior modification. It is an invitation for the living God to inhabit you. It's not just to know God or to know about God, but to fully acknowledge that God is living inside of you, remaining inside of you, shifting you, shaping you, transforming you to be more like him. It is the Spirit that empowers us to walk after the ways of God. The Christian life doesn't rely on your willpower or my willpower. The Christian life completely relies upon the power of the Spirit. That just as it descended on the day of Pentecost and the church exploded, He's present here today, arriving so, so, so long before we did today. And it is the Spirit that is in us, that over time will bear Christ-like fruit in our lives. My friends, this is what we celebrate today on Pentecost Sunday. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take a moment. We just prayed for each other. I'm going to ask us to go into another moment of prayer. And we just want to thank God for the gift that is the Holy Spirit. We do well to make much of the Spirit. And today, we're going to see the Spirit do some amazing things in our Scripture. But first, let's take a moment. Let's acknowledge that gift. Receive that gift. And let it shape us, let it transform us.
Let us become more and more and more like Jesus by the gift of the Spirit. God, thank you that you didn't just see it fit. Didn't just see it fit to say, I'm with you, but I want to be inside you and I want to dwell within you and I want to see my kingdom come through each and every one of you in your lives and the manifestation that I have within it. And so, God, we say thank you for being personal enough not only to move into the neighborhood, God, but to move into us. And so this morning we say, praise you. And we receive it, Jesus. In a posture of joy, we receive you, God. We thank you for this day. Fifty days, seven Sundays after Easter. When you ascended into heaven and came your spirit. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you're doing. And today, would we be encouraged, Jesus, encouraged to see your spirit move and that maybe, just maybe, God, we would have, again, a deeper line of sight, God, to see the ways of which you're moving in us, the ways of which the spirit's present in us, God. And so we lift this time up to you. We lift this text up to you. We lift all of this, Jesus, in your name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we say, would you speak this morning, God? We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you. Happy Pentecost Sunday, y'all. Well, today we're going to be uh, continuing on in our series called What's Next? And so what we've been doing over the last number of weeks is going through uh, the book of Acts. And taking a look at what comes after the birth, life, death, resurrection, and now, right, the ascension of Jesus. And ultimately, again, what's happening? What's going on? When the Spirit came down, what is being stirred in the life of believers? How the church is expanding and beginning to take ground. And so today we get to a really, really uh, incredible passage. It's one of my favorite in all of Scripture. And that is that we get to see this amazing, amazing conversion of one of the biggest persecutors of the church become an apostle. We're talking about Saul this morning, or for the most of us, maybe we know him as Paul specifically, but there's also another gentleman in this story that's of the utmost importance, and that's Ananias. And so today we're going to look at Saul. We're going to look at the story of Ananias. We're going to watch how God moves in both of them, and that we don't just actually see one conversion take place in this text, but we see two conversions. And before we get there, I want to explain a couple of things for us, and I want to address kind of a taboo word that I just said, and that's the word conversion. Now, some of us in the room, when I say the word conversion, might feel a little bit uncomfortable, and I would say rightfully so in some aspects. There's some negativity tied to the word conversion at times. Right now, if we look around the world, there's even anti-conversion laws that are being put into place in India, and it's something that's been weaponized over the course of a chunk of time, that some human being would impart some sort of a thought or some sort of a belief pattern into somebody else. So when I say the word conversion today, what I want to say is this. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about some human being imparting something onto some other human being by any stretch of the means. And so what I want to do is I want to take a moment and I just want us to, to, to redefine conversion for us so that it's not holding us back from fully entering into the text that we have today. Conversion would be defined as the process of changing or causing something to change from one form to another. And conversion that we're talking about specifically today, really what we're talking about is this turn and trust action towards Jesus. That God is meeting his people. That God is changing hearts. 
transforming hearts, meeting people while they're on their journey, meeting people while they're in process of becoming more and more and more who God created them to be in the first place. Again, this isn't something that a human being is imparting to somebody else or forcing upon somebody, but a beautiful meeting between us and God. A beautiful meeting where we're able to have this action of turning from something towards Jesus and taking the action of placing our trust within him. So when we say conversion, we talk about conversion. This is what we're talking about. This action, this movement forward. The other thing I want to acknowledge is this, is that there are difference, differences in conversion stories, and that's good, right? We would do really, really bad if we were to say there is such thing as a standard conversion story. This isn't the case. Some are simple, some are quiet, some are loud, some are fast, some are elongated over a massive period of time, and that is okay. Not everything looks the same way. Again, some are dramatic, what we see today. It's very, very, very dramatic in our text. But there is danger to this idea that there is a standard conversion. Tim Keller says that we're better to think about conversion as less a specific experience or encounter and more a set of elements that have taken place in our response to what has happened. I love that. Lloyd Ogilvy says it's not how dramatic an encounter is that's important. It's how decisive our response has been. Think about that. It's how decisive our response has been to what's happening and to how God is meeting us in that specific moment. So today in our text, we see two very, very, very decisive responses lived out, imploring us to make such decisions in our own lives as well. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn with me. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 19. I'm going to split it up. We're going to go 1 through 9, talk about it, verses 10 through 19, and talk about it. And as we do so, here's what I want us to understand here. We are, are really just beginning to get to know who Saul is. We first meet him just a little bit prior to this in Acts chapter 7, and effectively we're, we're, we're shown who he is as he, for the first time, condones the murder of Stephen. Stephen would be the first, again, martyr in the church. I encourage you to go back and to read uh, his words as he's being literally stoned to death. They are horrifying and simultaneously at the same time absolutely beautiful. And so we need to hear these words, right? We need to let them wash over us. It's good, but it's hard. It's brutal. And Saul is sitting there, and we first learn about Saul because he's sitting there and he's condoning what's happening in front of him and saying, effectively, this is good. This is okay. Saul is a Pharisee, and basically what that means is his job is to make sure that nothing changes to the Orthodox faith at the time. The way of Jesus begins to rise up and begins to spread across Jerusalem where he is and then begins to spread in other areas. And so Saul, out of his anger decides to obtain everything that he possibly needs to, to squash it as fast as he possibly can. His intent is to go and to arrest anybody that would be following the way of Jesus, and that he would go, whether that is to jail, or some sort of imprisonment, or potentially to the point of their death as well. This is his mission. And Saul believes that God is telling him that this is the reality of his life, and this is what he is to do, and so we find Saul at this point on this journey, a 150-mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus because he hears that there are some Christians that are beginning to hang out in Damascus. And this is where we find Saul. Read with me, starting in verse 9. Excuse me, chapter 9, verse (laughs) 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So let's re- recap this here. First thing, verse 9, I think it's so interesting. It starts off by saying Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Take that. He is angry. Saul is absolutely furious at what is happening. And so the author ch- shares this with us, Luke. Breathing out murderous threats. I just imagine him on this road and he's just so consumed in his anger at this point of what is happening and what's taking place. I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do. He's reinforcing it consistently as he is on this journey. He has everything that he needs in order to make this happen. Every bit of justification that he needs in order to pursue essentially squashing the early Christians, the early church. He's heading to Damascus. He's going, he's going, he's going. And all of a sudden, what happens? Bam! A flash of light. Saul falls to the ground. And Jesus speaks. I just imagine some extreme Saul running down the road and God's like, wait, 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 wait. Now! Bam! Right? Gotcha! (laughs) Saul's on his back. He's on the ground. Jesus speaks to him. Why are you persecuting me? What the heck is Saul thinking at this point? This (laughs) insane scenario is being lived out. In his own experience. This isn't somebody else. This is him. What is he thinking about at this point? This voice from the heavens is speaking at him. Why are you persecuting me? And he's like, I don't even know who you are. Why do you persecute me? And he asks, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. You're persecuting me. What's going through your head if you're Saul? What are you thinking about in that moment as you sit there lying on your back, blinded by what's taken place and what's surrounded you? Saul, the mighty, now on his back before God. Saul, the one who thought he was able to see so clearly what God had in store for him, now, at the end of our passage, what we see being led into the city because he's blind and cannot see. Saul, the one who intended to seize others, now seized himself by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's blinded. He's told to go. Keep going on your journey. Go into the city. Go to the place that you intended to go in the first place. He can't see, and so he's led by the men who are with him. His blinded eyes were as sightless as his soul, and for three days he focused his attention inward and only inward. coming to two realities that are in front of him. Number one, Jesus Christ really was risen from the dead. And the second thing, 
is that he had persecuted him by what he had done to his people. Three days, completely inward focus, coming to these truths, these realities. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What begins to be lived out in your soul in those three days? Okay. I'm going to continue on. Verse 10. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports of this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went into the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said this, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay. Similarly, Saul is sitting in Damascus, the house of Judas, specifically on Street Street. Ananias, a disciple of Jesus, goes and God calls to him, speaks to him. He receives his vision almost as if he's, he's doing so eagerly. Yes, Lord, I've been waiting to hear from you. He receives this vision from him, and personally at this point, he knows that Saul is on his way. He's hiding out in Damascus, trying to avoid the persecutor, and what does God call Ananias to do instead? Come out of hiding. I've got a plan for you. I have something for you to do. I've got somebody for you to come see. And so what does Ananias do? He's terrified. He tries to argue with God. And Jesus wins the argument. And he says, listen, Ananias, this is what you're going to do. You are going to go to the house of Judas, specific on Straight Street. Not the other houses. This is the house I specifically want you at, right? So if it was speaking to me this morning, he'd say, Jordan, I want you to go to Hope Women's Center. You're going to take a left on Warner. You're going to get on the I-10, take it all the way up to the 51, the 51 to McDowell, take a left, and it's going to be on the right-hand side of the road. This is where I have for you. He's giving this specific of instruction to Ananias. I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Don't mess it up. He's there. He's waiting for you. Oh, and by the way, I told him that you're coming. You have no other answer but to say yes in this moment. Begs the question, though, what if Ananias does say no? What if Ananias says no? What happens to Saul? He gets over his fear. He goes. He meets with Saul. He puts his hands on him. And he greets him with the most friendly, loving, and familial of language. And I love this. I think it's absolutely beautiful in the text. He doesn't just call him by his name. He says, brother. There's a nearness, there's an intimacy, there's a closeness that's taking place in this interaction between Saul and Ananias. It's just Brother Saul. 
The Lord Jesus told you that I was coming and I'm here and here I am. I'm laying my hands on you and I'm going to heal you. And he heals his sight physically, but he heals his sight spiritually. I love where it says, again, scales fell from his eyes. Yes, healed very much so from this physical blindness that had been plaguing him. Simultaneously, though, immediately up with he was filled by what? The Holy Spirit. Immediately. He hasn't eaten or drank in three days, and his first immediate reaction is to get up and to be baptized effectively by, by Ananias. And then he goes and he receives food and drink and regains his strength for what's to come. I don't know about you, but I love this text. It's beautiful. I think so many times you think about sharing a message and you think about what illustrations are you going to use to help see inside of it. This needs no illustration. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's vivid, the way that it's being lived out in front of us. And we see decisive actions come both from Saul and we see a decisive action come from Ananias to come and to say, yes, Lord, I'm here. Yes, Lord, you've met me and I acknowledge it and I receive it. And so here's what I want to do today. For the rest of our time, I want to focus on uh, a few different things specifically. Four things of which I believe, uh, again, over the course of the last number of days, uh, that, that God's really been speaking to me and that I've wanted to, to, to share that with you specifically. Uh, four paradigm shifts that we see, uh, to maybe some common things that we have in our lives, some common understandings that we have that maybe just are a little bit tweaked. Uh, four truths that we find in our text today that aren't just for Saul, but also not just for Ananias, they're for every single one of us. The first one that I want us to understand is this, that we've all been blind, or maybe better said that we all are to some extreme still blind. The second thing is that God is always pursuing us. The third thing is that nothing can disqualify you from God's grace. And the fourth thing is that nothing can disqualify you from being used by God. Okay? These are the four things. This is where we're going to spend the next few minutes together. First one, we've all been blind. Now, each and every single one of us has a story. Uh, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, we have a story of how we came, in fact, from a place who didn't know Jesus to the moment that we knew Jesus, just like we see lived out here with Saul specifically. It was a journey. Something happened. People were a part of that, for the most part, taking place in our life, and God showed up in an amazing way to each and every single one of us in that process as well. For me, that happened when I was 18 years old. I wasn't particularly raised in a, a Christian household. And uh, to be frank, at the moment, I was incredibly angry and frustrated. I never had a, a struggle with the view of, of God existing in some fashion, but I didn't know who that God was or what God looked like. I didn't know his character. And so what ended up happening is my understanding of God ended up being a reflection of how I was feeling in my really messed up heart. And I understood that God was uh, probably just as furious as I was and that God was angry. What that did is it made me not want to have any, any, any interaction with that God. I was just as angry at him as I was at what was happening around me in my, my, my specific circumstance situation, particularly my family at the time. And uh, there was a guy in my community uh, who I met and reached out. He was a guy by the name of Troy Gray. Some of you had the, the, the beautiful privilege of getting to know Troy. Troy tragically passed away at 29 from cancer. But my goodness gracious, did he have an impact. And when I met Troy, he was this massive, goofy, big-cheeked man that loved Jesus. And I had so much respect for him that any time he would invite me over to his house to hang with him, 
he would open up the scriptures with me and I would never say no because I respected him so much in that. And Troy invested in me and he spent time with me and he opened up the Bible with me and he walked me through the Gospels and he began to help me reconfigure this view of God. He began to help me reconfigure a view of Jesus, who Jesus was, what that meant for my life, and ultimately ended up uh, one night inviting me into uh, a relationship, a relationship with Jesus, and it changed everything that I completely was. The fact of it is, when we look at this specific story, most of us can see our story within it. Now, are we like Saul? Not necessarily. Most of us haven't persecuted the church. Most of us aren't murderers. Like, there's some very big differences here. But on a base level, if you get beneath some of the specific details of it, a lot of us can see it. Yes, Saul was physically blind, but uh, Saul was also, at this time, spiritually blind in many ways. And he hears the voice of Jesus from heaven, and he has an encounter leading to this understanding that there was far more to Jesus than he knew, and thus there was far more to God than he knew. And he knew the scriptures well. For most of us, we can find ourselves in that place. Maybe we, were, again, weren't physically blind, but we have been in these moments where we've been spiritually blind. Cut off having an incorrect view of God. One of the hardest things for us to admit in our lives is when uh, we have an incorrect view of God, isn't it? It's difficult. It's frustrating at times. We've been told that we've been made in the image of God, which has very specific implications for us. And the fact of it is, if we've been made in the image of God and we know it, and we discover we have a false image of God, we've discovered we have a false image of ourselves. Because we're made in the image of God, this false image of God will only lead to a false image of self. And it continues to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The more I don't understand who I am, again, that begins to then reflect upon God. So I have this, this conceived understanding from my own heart of who God is, right? We create God in our image versus understanding that we've been made in his image. And we create this God, and then that God then reflects an image back to us. And our image reflects an image back to that God that we've created and back and forth. And it becomes distorted over and over and over and over and over again. Again, the things that are happening in our lives begin to be reflected in who God is and in the character of God. If we're angry, perhaps that's the reality that's, that, again, we're seeing lived out in who God is. Maybe we're struggling with trust and we have a hard time really wrestling with doubts and the faithfulness of God and his, his, again, what he actually has in his character that he has to live out for us. And so what Saul has this amazing moment where ultimately, again, although very painful in many ways, he discovers a new vision of God. And in doing so, he discovers a new vision for himself, so much so that he goes from Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, to Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Literally changes his name because of how different his view of God is after this encounter on the Damascus Road. From one polar opposite to the next, I am not that anymore. I'm not a reflection. Now I'm a new creation. Remember, this is Saul, or Paul, as we know him, who later on in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And for him, this is a huge new birth into life. I'm not that. I'm not what I was. So much so that I've changed my name. And this is who I am. I am Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. From spiritual blindness to full vision of who God is and in turn who he is. And so my question for us today, first question is this. Where are our blind spots? Where are our blind spots? 
Where do we need a healing hand to come and to touch us? Where do we need to, to maybe have, again, an open vision, new eyesight on who God is and in doing so who we are because of that? Where are we blind? Where are our eyes and our hearts closed? The prayer for us today, if you're here and something's coming to your mind, is this. Take us back to the Damascus Road where there is more sight to be gained. A transformation is possible where we can understand God on a deeper level and in doing so understand who he's created us to be on the deepest of levels as well. So, first thing for us today from this text, we've all been blind, just like Saul. We've all been blind. Where are our blind spots? How do we bring those to Jesus and let him touch us, heal us of our sight and understand who he is on a significantly deeper level because there's always more to God than we know. Second thing in this text specifically is this. God is always pursuing us. I love uh, with both, both specific individuals in this text, both Saul as well as Ananias, that, none of that neither of them is coming to God in an action of, of their own pursuit. God is completely in every way, shape, and form coming to them and pursuing them in every single way. Christ is the initiator. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Again, not just the case with Saul. This is the case with Ananias as well. It's the Lord's approach. At the end of the day, our life is to completely always be lived in this posture, a posture of reception, knowing that he has pursued us first. One of the things that Tom Parker always says is that every, every time that we are professing love to God, it is always a response. We can never say, I love you first. It is always, I love you too. And I love that. And that has stuck with me for years. <laughs> I love you too. He is the one that's pursuing. We are charged with doing what? Staying in that space. Remaining in that space, understanding that reality that he is the one who's consistently in pursuit. Reminds me of John 15, talking about the vine. He says, abide in me as I remain in you, as I am with you. He doesn't say, come after me, chase me. He says, I'm already in you. I'm already here. Your job is to simply do what? Remain. Stay. Stay put. Don't go to the things outside of it. Stay here. I'm already with you. I've pursued you, and I'm consistent, consistently pursuing you. Abide in me. I am the true vine, the true source, the true power. I yield the true fruit that you want to see in your life, that true change that we're all striving for and wanting to see. The gospel tells us that remaining in God's love is something that we get to do with joy. It's something that we receive. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we perform. It simply is given to us. It is in the pursuit of us. The key words for us, remain, stay. Remaining means that we're not pursuing, but we're resting in the love of God, his pursuit of us. Fleming Rutledge says it like this. She says, there's a fashion today for exhorting us to live into various things, to live into our baptism, to live into our calling, to live into our mission. She says, I think that is a very 21st century humanist, do-it-yourself way of speaking. We don't live into the vine who is the life of the church and of each Christian. The vine lives into us. We live from the vine, from the word of God, from the body and the blood of Christ, from the tireless work of the spirit that is new every morning. Remain. Stay in my love, his pursuit of you. He never tells you to build your relationship with him based on how you feel about him. He says, I want you to remain in me and how I feel about you. He's pursuing you. His love is steady and it is unchanging and it is permanent for you. He says, I have chosen you. I want you. 
You have the love of the Father that is being poured into you consistently. Stay in my love. This is the key to the gospel, isn't it? And the fact of it is, church, it is impossible to be with Jesus and for change not to take place in our lives. Impossible. He is pursuing you. And so, friends, may we be people that live deep with Jesus. And that would be what transforms us. May we be people that show up with expectation that the Spirit is moving and the Spirit is at work, again, not only pursuing us, but everything around us, pursuing the renewal of all things. So may we be people who show up and live with expectation that God's here and God is doing something and it's my job to simply get on board, to stay in it, to remain in it, to be a part of it, to be encouraged by it, to listen closely to the promptings like we talked about last week and to respond with a decisive, yes, I'm in. So the first thing, we've all been blind. Perhaps we all still are blind. Where do we need healing? Second thing, God is pursuing you. It's not about your earning. It's not about your pursuit of him. It is all from a place of him pursuing you first. And so if you find yourself today here and you say, I'm trying to earn my love from God, stop. You don't have to. He's pursuing you. He has it for you. He's pouring it out for you. Receive it. Stay in it. Be in it. Solomon and Ananias are both living in this specific space. God's pursuing them. Their responses have both been yes. Third thing, nothing can disqualify you from God's grace. Nothing can disqualify you from God's grace. I'm going to say it one more time. Nothing can disqualify you from God's grace. If there is anybody, anybody that should be disqualified from God's grace, it is Saul. (laughs) Let's be very honest. It's Saul. He's the one. And yet, what happens? The exact opposite. But so far, so often we, we, we think that this is the case. We treat grace as something that it isn't. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Receive that. You are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. Period. He has grace for you. He has forgiveness for you. But here's what I want to do. I want to take a minute and I want to flip grace on its head. Often we look at grace and we treat grace as, again, as some sort of a commodity, right? Think about like an oil well. It's, it's <laughs> draining lower and lower and lower and so we need to raise the price on it. Not the case. Not the reality. It will never run out. There is always, always, always more grace for you, more grace for me, and more grace for everybody that surrounds us. And yet, we treat it the exact opposite often, don't we? We think, maybe, just maybe, there's only this little bit, so I'm going to try to use or embrace as much grace as I can as long as it doesn't cross a specific threshold. My friends, that's not the reality of the life that we're called to live. It says there is unending grace for you. An ending grace. Dallas Willard in Renovation of the Heart says this. He says, to grow in grace means to utilize more and more grace to live by until everything we do is assisted by grace. Then whatever we do in word or deed will all be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. The greatest saints are not those who need less grace, but those who consume the most grace, who indeed are most in need of grace. Those who are saturated by grace in every dimension of their being, grace to them is like breath. He later goes on to say this. He says, saints burn more grace than sinners. Saints burn grace like a 747 burns jet fuel. I love that. Do you know how much jet fuel a 747 burns? 
a lot. <laughs> it's not about how little we take. There's no pride in that, right? That takes us actually away from grace. That takes us away from the love of God. He says, embrace it all the day long. It should be like breath to you. Everything that you do in your life can only be done because of what? Grace. So take it. It's not sparse. We don't need to approach grace with a scarcity mindset. He says, I'm consistently and continuously pouring it out upon your life. And so, friends, may we stop treating it as if there's only a limited amount and we would embrace and receive the unending grace that God has for us and that we would live from that place. Again, grace is God's action in our lives. Everything we do is grace and from grace. Saul understands this. In this moment, he has new life, new opportunity. Again, Saul to Paul. He's received that grace, and he is living from it and breathing it out. And so my question for you this morning, church, is this, simply. Are we living for God's grace, attempting to, again, earn it? Or are we living from God's grace? Are we living for God's grace, or are we living from God's grace? Let's shift that paradigm for us. Let's not be people who live for it. Let's be people who live from it, that it would be like breath to us. That it would be in every fiber of our being. So again, we've all been blind. We all are blind. We need healing. God is always pursuing us. God always has grace for you. And the last thing is this. Nothing can disqualify you from being used by God. Nothing can disqualify you from being used by God. God didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something. He has intention, and he has purpose for your life. And the fact of it is, if we're going to answer the call that he has for us, we need more grace. Amen? We need it. And then again, a question I asked earlier, what if Ananias said no? God had a very specific intention and a very specific plan for Ananias in this day, and he said yes, and we praise God for that. What if Ananias said no? People say we need more Pauls in the church and in the world, and at the end of the day, we don't get Pauls without Ananiases showing up. What if Ananias said no? What if you say no? What happens? Nothing can disqualify you from being used by God. Again, we look to Saul. <laughs> If anybody should be disqualified from being used by God, it is Saul. And yet, the exact opposite happens, doesn't it? In fact, God actually uses many of the things in his early life later on to do amazing things for his kingdom. He's a well-connected, highly educated Jewish man, a second-generation Pharisee, and a Roman citizen, all of which God uses in amazing, amazing, amazing ways later on in his ministry. We get Ananias. Ananias is living in this place of fear, completely holed up, not wanting to be used by God in any way, shape, or form. He invites him to go see Saul, and he's like, nah, I'm good. I'm down to go do a lot of things, and that's not one of them, because what you're asking me to do is essentially to turn myself in to be arrested, and possibly to be put to death. I'm good. I'm going to pass on that. And yet... Ananias has a conversion moment as well, out of a place of fear into a place of boldness, chasing after the life that God has in store for him. As it relates to being used by God, the fact of it is fear paralyzes us, but the good news is perfect love casts out fear. Amen? Perfect love casts out fear. 
Ananias went to Saul for Saul's sake, yes, to heal him. But Ananias went to, to Saul for Ananias' sake as well, so that he could stop hiding and be fully alive again. Being used by God. I think for many of us, the human tendency that we live with is this, so that we offer only the best to God. We don't give him the mess. Maybe even the mundane, the ordinary, the average in your life. We take those things and we say, here's this piece of my life. And that's not the reality. God says, I don't just want part of your life. He says, I want all of it. He says, I would love to take the mess. I'd love to take the mundane, ordinary. I'd love to also have your extraordinary. That would be great. But I, I want all of it. It's not this and that. It's not pick and choose. He says, bring it all to me. Later on, uh, again, right, we have this understanding, this deep understanding, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your will, all of your strength. He says, I want it, all of it. Bring it to me. I want to use it. I want to use you. You may be here today and you might be in that space and you say, I don't know about that. God doesn't really seem like he wants to use me. My question for you is, what are we bringing to God? What are we putting in front of him? In his pursuit, what are we holding back from the goodness of God? What are we holding back from him placing his hands on healing and using? might say, I just have this really average, ordinary, messy stuff, and God says, hey, you're in good company. Countless people across the biblical narrative, as well as faithful servants today, have allowed God to take those pieces of their life and to transform them and to use them. And if you don't believe me, oh my goodness, believe me. Read this book. It is the reality for you and for me. If you're here today and you feel like there is no way that God could possibly use you, remember this. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer and a thousand other things. Uh, (laughs) Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Ananias was afraid. And Lazarus was dead. No life is disqualified from being used by God and for his purposes. He intends to use all of us. And just as Saul is God's chosen instrument, as he says in verse 15, so are you. And so as we close our time today, know this. God is always pursuing you, my friends. God intends to heal you of your blindness. He has unlimited, unending grace for you. And he intends to use you to see his kingdom come. Receive that truth today. We're on a lifelong journey of God becoming God more fully to each and every single one of us. And so, church, may we be people with our eyes open and our hearts open, and may our response to God's invitation to that life always be characterized by a decisive, yes, I am in. Let me pray for us.